My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast and today's topic is business storytelling and sketchnoting with Colin James. Colin is one of Australia's most respected and well-known keynote speakers and facilitators. His deeply engaging and humorous and provocative presentations are the highlight of any conference. He excels at imparting practical skills and workable knowledge while it's making the whole audience howl with laughter. Winner of Australian Educator of the Year in 2008, Australian Keynote Speaker of the Year in 2020, and voted the highest rated speaker at the all-global Gartner Conferences in 2019, scoring higher than both Tony Robbins and Simon Sinek. With over 30 years experience in 34 countries globally, his experience and unique style set him apart. Whether it's speaking to a crowd of 10,000 as he did in 2012 at the United Nations Conference or facilitating a small group of 20 CEOs and executives to ensure that their contributions are superb and profoundly relevant, he leaves a lasting impression. Colin, welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Well, William, uh, thank you for a staggering introduction. Um, it's kind of weird that 30 years I've been doing this. Uh, you kind of forget the places I've, you know, we, I've been and the people we've, we've spoken to. And it's a, it's a pleasure to be here and having a conversation with, uh, with you. Yeah, and you definitely left a lasting impression on me. So how I remember you most is to the little whispers that were happening in Harvard at the time. So first of all, you stood out because you spoke with great, you had this great presence about you. You spoke with gravitas. You didn't speak that often, but when you did, it was very memorable. And also the whispers that started going around. So I was sitting beside Pierre and I thought he was very advanced with his iPad at the time. So that's a, quite a number of years ago. He, he was an innovator at the time. And then all these whispers started going around his you just see the guy that's sitting in the middle of the classroom, Colin, oh, you should check out a sketchbook. He's capturing all his notes visually. So again, in terms of that, uh, it, it was, there was nearly a clamor to see how you, um, how you did that. So I'm going to ask you about that uh, later on. So and it, it's funny, um, your sketch noting then was such at odds with what we saw in Harvard because it was still the green chalkboards and then you know Robert Keegan was using acetates uh and markers you know with the overhead projector um so so in terms of that Colin we're going to talk about business storytelling so business storytelling why is it so important for business leaders 
The fascinating thing about business leaders is that they're often not leading. What they're doing is protecting. So they're very cautious, they're often very risk averse. And so to take on something new and different is sort of as outside of their normal DNA, unless they're entrepreneurs. But you think about most business leaders, they're leading big organizations, often with thousands of employees, uh, monitored and governed by a board. And so their, their reluctance to take on something <clears throat> that's outside of convention or might be something that is not within their experience means that they will tend to avoid it. The bridge into opportunity or the bridge to trying to unfreeze them from that risk uh, uh, aversion is to use stories. Because within the story, you can build example and reference, uh, the power of social proof. If someone else has done it, then it's okay for me to do it. But mm. also you can embed strategy, right? So I'll talk about what another client did in a similar circumstance faced with the same challenge. And as I relay what they did, you can just see them in their minds just plotting out the, 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 the story points, thinking, well, I could do that. And they see themselves in situ mentally, and as a result, the, the likelihood of them now getting to yes is going to be increased. Overcoming resistance and objections is a classic story uh, methodology. Uh, you know, salespeople have known this for years. But the, the, the power of story, of course, is that it excites the imagination. It moves yeah. beyond just the simple rational logic, and it creates a memorable experience for people. So storytelling is, you know, is integral to being able to shape how to influence someone in the way they feel, the way they think, and ultimately the way they behave. So, so people approach you and they're kind of going, listen, I'm setting goals or I have these major challenges there. What are the goals or challenges that they, they are having uh, then when they approach you for your expertise? Well, let me give you a, a case in point. So uh, earlier this week, um, I was approached by a CEO who's just taken over <clears throat> one of the major super funds or the uh, uh, retirement funds here in Australia. Uh, and he's new. He's, he's, he was based in the United States uh, for 20 years. He is Australian. He's now back. And now he wants to become a thought leader. He wants to become a spokesperson that leads the industry. Uh, and so he, his approach to us was to say, well, how do I position myself to be the go-to person for the media when they think about superannuation or retirement funds, how do I shape and influence policy at the federal and state government levels? And how do I also become the representative of the many funds that are out there, some of which we are competing against? And so with that in mind, we then start de determining, well, what's going to be the way that he is to define his brand or his reputation? Uh, what context does he now allow himself to be seen and speak in, and also what's the three or four key messages that he wants to use as his pillars to define his, philo his philosophy, his policy, and his ambition. Now, with all of that in mind, um, we are now in a position to start designing an approach that can best serve him as an individual. And we do the same thing now with groups, because they are you know, leadership teams in every industry who would like to be the, the vanguard of their, in, of, of their industry. They'd like to be the, the, the reference point of excellence. And so once again, we can look at ways of mapping out not only a strategic pathway, but also how they can think about the entire approach to 
the way they're managing their business, and of course the idea of wrapping culture around it that is going to have the transformative dynamics necessary for these ridiculously uncertain times. So, so these, these are some of the, the ways that we approach things. And if you, if, you, if you pair it all back to its fundamental foundation, and it's everything is everything, is to do with communication, how you get your message across. So, so you know, that's the, that, those are some of the ways that we go about uh, engaging with clients. And storytelling itself, then, what, what's the, the, the purpose around storytelling, then? Why is it so important for leaders uh, when they're communicating to use storytelling as their method of communication? There's a there's a wonderful uh, word. Uh, I'm sure you we you you and your uh, listeners to your podcast may be familiar with, which is epistemology. Now, epistemology is the study of knowledge and knowing. Like, how do you know you know something? So, if I say to someone, "Have you been to Moscow?" and they go, "No," and I say, "Say, how do you know Moscow exists?" And I go, oh, well, I've, you know, I've seen pictures and I've met people who've been there and I can go on Google Maps and there's endless stories and history associated with Moscow, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, yeah, you've got a lot of data, but you don't have it epistemologically until you go there. It's in the lived experience that you understand something fully. And in the absence of the direct experience, the next best thing is a story. And I think this is why we love stories, right? Uh, you know, we, we settle down in the evening and you go to your Netflix and you go and you say to your partner, if, you, if you're living with someone and you say, what do you feel like watching tonight? Right. What do you feel like? And they're like, oh, I feel, you know what, I, you know, I feel like a bit of a drama tonight. Oh, you know what I mean? I wouldn't be, a, I wouldn't mind being a bit scared. Any, any you know, uh, gothic horror shows or something. And so what you're asking for is tell me a story. A story that's going to engage and meet a need or a, a, a desire that I have currently, and I'll be engrossed. I'll be I'll be transported. I'll be I'll be in, I'll be excited by the narrative, the story. When friends get together, what do you do? You share stories. What have you been up to? You know, what's happened recently? When you break bread and with your, with family, exactly the same question is, is always asked, right? What have you been doing? What's been happening? And out come our stories. So stories are the foundation to any connection that occurs in any context between human beings, work, home, family, life. And then, of course, you take it up to a meta level, culture. Culture is nothing more than the collection of stories that we've all agreed that become our defining reference point on how we choose to live. Right? Our historical references. Our, uh, if you're in religion, what's at the base of every religion? Books or texts that are story-based. And it's within those stories is the moral coda, the, the rules of the game, the, how you're supposed to live your life. And all of this is bound by story. So story is so intrinsic and uh, so essential to the human experience. So when we transpose this into corporate world, or if you're going to be a leader, then use that as your way of connecting and communicating. I mean, we don't have a content problem in our world, right? If, we, if you want content, Google it. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if content was the answer, we'd all be exquisitely happy living in perfect relationships the physical embodiment of perfect health and well-being, and uh, we'd be, all be rich and, and happy because all the content on how to do that's available a few keystrokes away. It doesn't happen. 
But what does inspire us is story, example. And if you watch someone who's faced into the odds and met the challenge and overcame the demons and emerged the other side, we go, I could do that. That's much more convincing than any data or any content or any information. So, yeah, you know, story is so fundamental to the lived-in human experience. So by extension, business leaders need to do this. This is, what they, this is what will connect them with their people, with their customers, stakeholders, all the usual stuff that we talk about when you are a leader. And story becomes the, the vehicle to get your message across. And in terms of that, you were talking about it. Well, it's not about content because if it's content, you know, you could Google it. Okay. So then it's about context, isn't it? And it's by creating that context is connect. Is, 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 is that what you're doing with storytelling? You're able to connect with people to say whatever the message is you're trying to convey. I remember this was about three years ago, working with a senior leader of a big bank here in Australia. Uh, every year there's this major conference. It's run by the Australian Financial Review, which is the leading financial newspaper. And all the banks uh, are represented and other financial institutions. And so they have the beauty parade, right? The CEOs go up and yabber away for 20 minutes about how great they are and, you know, one after the other. This one CEO said, I want to do this differently. And so we worked it out. We understood the theme of the conference. He had his 20 minutes allocation. Um, now, his, his concern about the banking uh, and the role of banking, bankers, banking plays in society is corporate social responsibility. So he had a CSR message that he wanted to get across. So he, he was, the, I think, the fifth person that morning. And so a couple of the other CEOs had gone up, stood behind the lectern, done their stuff. And then he was called to the stage. He walks past the lectern. Everyone else had stood there. He stood in the middle of the stage, no notes, no slides, nothing. And he started with a story. The story went like this. Last Thursday, I was sitting at my desk and my EA rang through to me and said, uh, Matthew, you've got to take this call. I said, well, who is it? He said, oh, it's, it's a customer, take the call. So he took the call and on the phone was a woman, a customer of the bank, who lived in a little town called Wollongong, south of Sydney. And she was phoning the CEO of the bank because she was living in a refuge with her two children, having escaped the brutality of a violent marriage and had the responsibility to say, I still have to meet my mortgage payments, but without any means at all, and was asking the CEO if she could work as an, at night as a cleaner to clean branches to offset her her mortgage responsibility. Mm. Now, he told that story, but in a far more personal way than I've just described. I'm reporting what he told. The way he told that story meant every person in that conference, 5,000 people, almost stopped breathing. Mm. He then introduced us to Angela, the name of, the, the, of this woman. And he said to himself, I'm a CEO listening to this, the plight of this person, this customer, but this woman, this human being. And my question is, as the financial services industry, as the banking sector, what's our responsibility? What do we do about people like this? How do we support people who find themselves trapped in circumstances like this? How do we deal with the fact 
that somewhere in our society, 40% of women are vulnerable to this level of potential domestic violence. Well, as you can appreciate, at the end of that conference, guess who they were talking about at the end? Who stood out from the entire day? Where everyone else had PowerPoint slides about their financials, their performance, their profit margins, their revenue targets, their KPIs, their OKRs, and all that stuff. That story from that CEO became a reference point, which then led on to a whole debate about the role banking and financial services play in supporting the, well, the health and well-being of customers within the Australian society. That's the power of story. And he was defined by that. Right? He became, he's now known in the industry because of that story. So that story itself was about 10 minutes long. He then had a, uh, 15 minutes to talk about how he was thinking that the, or advising or recommending how the banking sector might respond. And he closed with the story of how he and the bank supported that customer or that person, that woman, Angela. And that was his 20 minutes. So the story itself, in total, about 12 minutes of that entire presentation, and yet that has become a moment of significance, a moment of meaning that profoundly has affected policy, direction, orientation, and the work that the financial services sector now does within Australia. That's a story. That's the power of story. Now, in preparing for that story, a couple, of, a couple of factors. First of all, that story was 100% true. It wasn't contrived. It wasn't made up. It wasn't a scenario. It wasn't a hypothetical. Because when I was asking him about why he cares about corporate social responsibility, he had told me about the story. And in his mind, it was just something that was confirming his belief system or his, 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 um, his interest. I said, well, there's, there's your presentation, that story. He goes, I can't tell that story. I said, of course you can. He said, but no, I can't, not at the conference. I mean, is, is it appropriate? And I said, it, as you say, it's all about context. Because in that context, that's what was needed to be heard. We didn't, hear to, we didn't need another update on bank performance in that context. So yes, William, context is everything. And if you understand the context and you have the right story for that context, that's where magic happens. That's where the transformative power of story will, uh, will be realized. And that was a, a, a magical moment, I have to say. And what a courageous thing to do as well as daring to be different, you know, walked by the lectern, you know, stood in the middle of the stage, I'm sure, because a lot of, you know, people that I would help, you know, uh, with presenting, their knees were probably trembling at that point to say, this is so out there and so different and then to share a real human story that everybody could connect with in some way and that's where you were saying that, that the magic um happens and what i really like about what you said then about that that there was a call to action wasn't there on everybody exactly at, at yeah. the end so speaking of those things you know you talk about memorable moments there's the hook at the start in terms of that humans story there's a call to action at the end when you're working with people then what are the different elements then do you use a story arc you know what is it that you do to help create that story now with all with all storytelling um you know as you know the 
the formula for storytelling is uh, in, in script writing or movie making or you think of, you know, the, the, when people deconstruct um, great writing in drama or even in novels or any storytelling, there, is, there, are, there are methods and approaches. What we find, though, in all storytelling is that if you strip it back, there's the requirement of the four W's. Uh, where did it take place? When did it take place? Who was involved? And what happened? Now, it doesn't always have to be in that order, right? It doesn't have to be the where, when, who, what. Typically, though, in the way that we will use stories is um, I will invariably say, oh, about three months ago, or this morning, or last year. I will generally start with a time frame. Um, then I will then go to where did it happen. Now, it could be location, like the name of a city, town, or it could be in an office, or it could be, in this case, the last story I told was that it was at a, co a conference, at the Australian Financial Review Conference. So now I've got, I've got two locations. I had three years ago, at a conference, the CEO of a bank. Now, I didn't introduce his name until later, right, Matthew, when he answered the phone. Matthew, you've got to, take, you've got to answer this call. Um, so now I've introduced the character. Now, the, the, in this case, there's two characters. There's the CEO, who's telling the yeah. story, and then there's Angela, who is the, is the hero of the story. And so now we have the, the, the interplay of these two characters within the broader context of the conference itself. The other character is the audience, because the audience were very quiet. They, they, became, they, they could hardly draw a breath. So now we have a reaction built within that story. And then what happened was the description of the event, right? the, the narrative that took place. So I've now gone into uh, when it took place, where it took place, who was involved and what happened. Now, once I've described that, then it needs to come to a logical point. What's the point of the story? And a story can have many points. You can, do, you can select the point. The magic of the story lies in its ability to link to the outcome. Now, in the case of the story I used, the outcome was context, because that was your opening question. So is context important? Now, I, I, I didn't know you were going to ask that question, um, but I then took that question and I went into my story library. What story could I use that could respond to your question? The story of the CEO, Matthew, um, CEO of a bank, popped into my mind. I then used that story, and then when I got to the end of it, I then referenced it back to context. Now, at that point, you might have been feeling, you, you might have felt a bit of a surprise going, oh, that comes back to what I asked right at the beginning. And that's really what you're seeking to do, is to create the delight of closure. And you close the loop. And suddenly people go and they have this beautiful thing called the aha experience. They go, aha, right there, there it connects. And that's, that's, the, that's the, the craft and the art of story construct, but also story delivery. One of the best teachers I had in understanding this was Billy Connolly, the Scottish comedian. I don't know. He is a master storyteller. And this was in Sydney about 15 years ago. This is how long ago this was. At the Sydney Opera House, uh, I paid to watch Billy Connolly three nights in a row. Why? I wanted to see how different he was each night. 
because I thought this guy seems so random. He has this wonderful looseness in his delivery. So for three nights I paid, it was a lot of money back then <laughs> for three nights of uh, Billy Connolly at the Opera House. And here was the staggering thing. Every night was identical, except for the opening and the close. His opening was a story that he had that day, and he closed with that closing off the story that he opened with. But the rest of the set for two and a half hours was virtually identical word for word. Even the randomness of forgetting things, but what he did do so beautifully is how he looped stories. He'd open up a story, and then he'd leave it, then he'd come in with another story, and then he'd leave that, then he'd have another, a central story, which was a beginning, middle, and end, and then he closed the second story, and then he closed the first story. So he might have started with, I was talking to my uncle, and then 20 minutes later, so as I said to my uncle, and everyone goes, oh, wow, it's about his uncle. That's right, he started his uncle 20 minutes ago. That's the genius of storytelling when you loop and close. In other words, the link to the outcome. So you have your incident with those four Ws. You have your point, and then you have your link. Now, if you just use that simple structure in all storytelling, business storytelling, that's it. That's all you need. Right? Don't need to get more fanciful than that. Right. Obviously, in script writing, you can start talking about narrative arcs and demons and hero's journey and other, other sort of uh, approaches. And they are worth exploring uh, to start looking at, you know, how do you in introduce dilemma? How do you meet the uh, unsolvable problem? How do you reach for your allies? How do you confront the enemy, either external or internal? Uh, what is the what is the victory that emerges or what is the lesson that is learned and how do you take that back to the village, blah, 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 right? So there's a whole bunch of different um, story arcs that can easily be ex uh, explored and understood. But I keep it to those three simple steps. The event, the point, the link. Uh, that is wonderful and thank you for that. It, it... I, near, I was going to quote a Billy Connolly uh, punchline, and I probably uh, won't do that now. I won't do it justice. Um, and that for me is very much about the storytelling and when you're presenting an influence, it's multi-layered. So you were talking about the construct there. You have the narrator who's presenting uh, this, but the, the key points are the key, key elements there. And uh, I noticed earlier on, you were talking about social proof, you know, the work of... Uh, Robert Cialdini there, especially about those principles of persuasion. So again, here, you know, when you are designing your story, then it's, it is multi-layered then, isn't it? It's, it's, it's something that looks so smooth, like what Billy Connolly doing with the loops and, you know, uh, and the, the, the general moments that I see comedians do this, like uh, Daryl Breen, um, who's uh, Irish, but UK based, he's quite wonderful at doing moments of improv in engaging with the audience, using the content from that improvisation piece, and 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 linking that into the story, which is which is a, a wonderful art, I I must say. And something else that struck me, what you said there, is the story libraries. So myself and Pierre Batau were talking about this a uh, number of months ago. That it's really important if you're a facilitator or if you're a senior manager is to have that that bank of stories to say, okay, here's a story that would be good. Because I think there's a danger there, isn't it? That people use the same story over and over again. They go, oh, 
not this story or to keep because I know a, a certain businessman in Ireland do the same story over and over again and it's like okay I've heard this five times now or six times you know um, so what is it about creating those story libraries that people should remember you know William the, the, the point you make about the, the use of the same story over and over and again first of all it, it does start to sound disingenuous right because you go oh there we go and, and you've you've probably got them in your in your own life. Um, I don't know if you <laughs> see this in in the long term relationships. You you go out to dinner somewhere and and uh, your partner says, "Oh, I must tell you a story," and you go, "Oh, not that story again," because you've heard it for the thousandth time. And then you, you're driving home afterwards. You're going, "That story has changed." Yeah, yeah, I thought I'd mix it up a bit. So so what? It's natural for us. We we sort of get our little cluster of really good stories together. It's just natural of how we describe ourselves. A friend of mine's currently, um, she's in her 50s, and she's um, divorced <laughs> recently, or when I say recently, about two years ago. She's now back dating. She's out dating. And she said, the funniest thing is I have six stories for every date. And I, I, I know that <laughs> these are my <laughs> stories because they describe who I am, what I stand for, my belief system, and something about my background that gives you an insight to me. She goes, and I just realized, right, I've, I've got my story library for dating. And likewise, we need to think about these for business context. But you'll hear this at, at conferences. So, so many people use the cliched stories or, you know, like the Wayne Gretzky story I hear in the United States all the time. Go where the puck is going to be, not where it's at, and, you know, this sort of stuff. And you go, look, we've all heard those stories. What's more surprising is the story that is, might be on the surface mundane or just ordinary, but there's links that are made out of it. Uh, I had, we had this wonderful experience uh, two years ago, uh, just pre-COVID, in fact, maybe two months before COVID. In Sydney, I was working with a group of executives around storytelling. And at lunchtime, I said, OK, go out into, into the city and find a story. Just go and find anything. doesn't matter what it is. Don't think about what it means. Just go and observe. And so all that, they went out for an hour and they came back. And the, um, the head of the head of um, the, the, the human resources, um, and of course had to be a woman because that's how organizations manage themselves, um, she, she told her story and it was brilliant. And she said, well, I left the building, as you asked us to, and I was waiting to cross George Street, one of the main streets in, in CBD Sydney, and I went up to the traffic light and I hit the silver button, right? You got that little silver button and I'm sitting there waiting and then I noticed the person next to me came up and pressed the button. And I said, you know, in my mind, I thought, didn't you see me press the button? And then another person came up and pressed the button. Everyone was wanting to press the button. I mean, they saw the button had been pressed, but were they thinking, I have the magic touch. My touch of the button will change the, the light system. And I was thinking, in our company, in our organization, how many people feel like they are powerless? that they want to touch the button to make a change in the system. They want to change the, to touch the button to try and create the change that is necessary in order to be more effective. Or they want to touch the button because they simply want to have their say, to have a bit of power, to have a bit of control. Maybe we need to implement more silver buttons in the way that we manage our organization. Bang! Suddenly, this business started to talk about silver button strategies. How, how do we get this? The, where's the touch button that means we can influence the system or influence the change? Now, from that, I sat there just thinking, what a cool story. 
right? Just that simple thing of crossing the street developed a strategy on how to empower people in your organization and engage them in their work. Ah, now that story, I think, is more powerful than any classic example of some hero who achieved stuff. Um, you know, at, at conferences, we'll uh, occasionally get people that have done amazing things, right? You know, they've crossed Antarctica on their own, uh, you know, three months in incredible conditions, and they've got footage of their endurance and facing into near death. And, and then they end off by saying, you know, you too can do this, right? If you believe strong enough and, you know, and have conviction and courage, you'll be able to achieve anything you want. And no one believes that for a second. Everyone's going, no, <laughs> well done you, but not, not me. Yeah. In other words, the extraordinary story is impressive. It's not relatable. Mm. It's the smallest story. It's the everyday story that we need to find. And that's what we encourage you to do, to build your library. What did you do today? Who did you have a conversation with? What occurred when you were driving into work or if you were uh, working from home? Um, uh, did a child say something you, to, to you today? That became a defining moment. Uh, and that's where I think you've got to be awake to stories. Uh, I, I, William, have you read any Bill Bryson? Yeah. The author? Now, Bill Bryson, the American based in the UK uh, author who writes these wonderful travel books, right? He just, he just writes stories of what he yeah. does. Like he goes to a town, walks around, and he writes it down. He sells millions of books. I mean, they're hysterically funny. And I was lucky enough to um, see him present at a literary event <laughs> in Sydney 10, 11 years ago. And he held up this battered book, and it was like a little notebook. And he said, you see this little no notebook? I put my four children through the best universities with this little notebook. Because you know what I do every day? I write down what happened, and I turn those into, I turn those into books. And I said, I'll give you an example. And he pulled out his little notebook. He said, this morning, and he told a story about a waiter and asking for orange juice, and he got grapefruit juice. And the expectation of drinking orange juice and then having grapefruit juice and how it just completely freaked his mind out. Now, it was just such a tiny little story, but it was about expectation. It was about service. It could be about communication. Uh, you know, you could elaborate anything you like just from that tiny little event. But now that was written down in his book. And he said, now, will I use the story? He goes, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it'll make it into one of our books. I don't know. But that's how you do it. Just write them down. And I thought, oh, there we go. Simple as that. Be awake to stories. Write them down. Look for them. They're everywhere. We are surrounded by them every second. The magic, though, is to use them appropriately, tactically, intelligently, creatively. And that takes practice. Right? There's, 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 there's no two ways about it. It's not, it's not, you know, I'm a storyteller. It takes practice, like anything. You build the muscle, storytelling muscle. Uh, but when, you, when you've got it, man, you can be so, so uh, your capability to transform, influence, and shape how people feel, think, and behave is elevated dramatically. And that's really important that you say that it's those mundane stories that with that strategic intent, you can be tactical then can make all the difference uh, to people. And it's funny when you talk about that relatable thing is, is I remember winning business um, with a client over somebody else who was a lot more established. And this person was, you know, 
five star all singing all dancing but people couldn't connect with that person and say we could never achieve that they were talking about all their amazing feats and achievements and they were like well we don't know how to do that uh here's a person that's can show us and they were talking about me who can do this that's a lot more uh, achievable and i think there is something about the stories that you tell that you have to figure out who your audience is. So I think that's a very much key part of when you are doing your um, design of your story, then is who is my audience and how will they connect to this message? Would you, so would you have any advice around connecting with your audience or understanding your audience before you go in? What preparation pieces people might do? So when I am going in, what's a story that I might choose to be, to use your words, tactical, that my key message is memorable, but also serves a purpose. The approach that we would recommend um, is what we call the three D steps, uh, mm. the D, 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 and the first one is to diagnose. The second is to design, and the third is to deliver. Mm. So the diagnosis always start with your audience. You know. And the question that we ask is, what is the outcome from the audience perspective? Now, I know this seems like a blinding flash of the obvious, right? What is the outcome from the audience perspective? And you know how few people do this? They always go into meetings or they go into conversations with the, 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 their thinking is, what's my outcome? My outcome is to sell something or my outcome is to pitch this or my outcome is to get this resource or, now, that's your outcome, but what's their outcome? What's the outcome that's going to best serve their interests? And so we then address the four sub-outcomes, which is what, at the end of the communication, what will they feel? Secondly, what will they think? Thirdly, what will they do? And finally, what will they commit to? And in that sequence, feel, think, do, commit to. So feeling, uh, do you want them to feel confident that you're the right person for the job? Do you, want to feel, do you want them to feel challenged or provoked? Do you want them to feel disturbed that, oh my God, I'm com I've become complacent? Uh, do you want them to feel comforted and seen and respected and, 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 and understood? So that feeling therefore means if I want to get that, that experience to be created, what story will best deliver that? What will they think? Now I've got to think about content, right? So is there data, information, the, the usual stuff of content? However, in the delivery of that content, how do I embed it so it's meaningful? Well, a story would be good. How could I think about its application or where it might have been used in the past or an example or a reference that will validate and confirm that this recommendation is sound or useful? So in the thinking aspect, what's a, an example? This is the social proof stuff of Robert Caldini. Uh, what will they do? Now, now I'm asking for the call to action. Now, in the call to action, how do I lay out the steps? Right? What's the pathway or progress from this point forward? And again, a story could do that for you. So rather than you sort of laying out the steps in a mechanical way, you describe how someone followed this path and got a, a positive result or a successful outcome. Well, that might be the place for story there. And then the commit to is what's the accountability element down the track? And again, story opportunity. Now, does that mean I'm going to have a story for each of those? No. I'm going to then decide in my design where the stories will be best placed. Do I start with a story? 
or do I start with a question that then will lead into relevance that will then lead to the story which will then confirm the idea. So I'm now starting to uh, plot out the design uh, aspects of my communication. Then the delivery is the third step. So diagnose, design, deliver. Now in the delivery, storytelling is different to reporting. So a, a reporter will report what, what just happened. He had the facts. The storyteller makes it come alive as if it's happening right now. The imagination's ignited, pictures are created, almost like you're running the movie in your mind as the story unfolds. That's storytelling versus reporting. Uh, the distinction is often tonal. Also, the, the, um, the way you use time. If you describe it as if it's in the present tense, if it's happening now, that becomes far more engaging. And as you, let's wind back to the story I was telling about the CEO. He walked, he walks past the um, lecture. The other speakers had stood there, right? So, so now you're there, you, you're seeing him walk past the lectern. So I'm describing as if it's happening. And that means your imagination is, it, it's got no, no, no choice. It has to create that picture in order for the story now to make sense. And that's really what you're seeking to do, is, is how to invite imagination to do its work to support the narrative that you are using with your words and tone. And that becomes the, the, the part. So where do stories come in? You've got to decide. I often will think about story usually at, uh, in a keynote environment, like if I'm presenting at a conference, I will often start with a story. If I'm pitching or working with a client, I will use the stories later when I'm getting into the content or the ideas for social proof. And if I've got reluctance or challenge or oppositional energy, I'll use stories for overcoming resistance and objections. So I'm thinking about the stories all the time. But I can tell you, I've got my backpack full of stories ready to pluck out what's appropriate and what's necessary. Uh, and as I said earlier, you know, you can, you can find a story a day. I yeah. Mean, if you found, found one story a day, that's 30 stories a month, uh, you, you do the math, right? You can build the stories uh, and then means you're not going to be dependent on your, on your top six dating stories every time. You can come up with uh, a whole variety of different stories for different reasons. And I think what's really important is know what's in your toolkit uh, as well is 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 how do you create from Nancy Duarte is how do you create those star moments the stand out and repeatable moments whether it's a fact whether it's a statistic whether it's a story whether it's a visual you know those those capturing images and and for me then is is we talked about leaders then who can be disingenuous all right um, and there's certain pitfalls of people when they still tell stories that they're not authentic that you were saying there so what might the tips you might give to people to make sure that they're not telling the same story over and over again or that it's coming across as, yeah, I don't get this. You're trying to engage us, but yeah, I don't buy it. Ronald Reagan famously had one speech, the light on the hill. And in his campaign for president, he went from town to town to town, city hall to city hall to town hall, to group, to group, to group, and he told he had exactly the same speech. And the speech itself appealed to the heart, and it appealed to the gut. 
And there was a moment in the speech, two moments, where it was very difficult not to feel yourself welling up at the emotional depth that he was it's describing and defining in the telling of the idea of the world of possibility that he could bring to the presidential race or to being the president of the United States. Now, he saw, told that story maybe a thousand times, who knows? But every single time, it had exactly the same result. People were entranced. Now, in this case, the reason why that worked is because Ronald Reagan was an actor. He knew how to deliver that story in the most sincere, authentic way every single time, exactly as an actor does every night on the West End when they're repeating the same lines that they repeated the night before and the night before that and the night before that, and maybe the 365 times they've done that show. But every single time they do it is the first time mm. for that audience. Now, when I say disingenuous, it's when it feels like it's rote or, you know, here we go again. There's nothing wrong with telling the same story, but the idea of being associated, what I mean by that is that it genuinely connects with your, who you are at a deep and visceral level. That's what gets felt. Now, yeah, as, a, as, a, as an educator, I have some stories that I've used literally thousands of times because it works. And I know it'll, for this audience, at this time, for this moment, is the most powerful story that will support them in their learning or, their, or, or the next steps. Now, if someone who has seen me before, and I, in fact, we, <laughs> I had this literally yesterday. I was presenting to another bank here in Australia to a leadership team. And one of the members on that leadership team I've worked with for over eight years. She has seen me uh, present many, many times. And I presented content that she had seen before. And this was magic when she said at the end, said, Colin, you know, I've seen you present that before, maybe six, seven times. And honestly, it feels like the first time. And I thought, hallelujah, because that's my goal, right? My goal is to make it as pertinent, relevant and fresh mm. as if it is the first time it's ever been uttered, because it is for that audience and for, the, for that moment. So, so. At this point, sometimes people will say, well, are you genuinely being authentic or are you just performing? So let me get a bit contentious here. Of course you're performing. In fact, that's what we do all day at work. It's not called a performance appraisal for nothing. That's the language. I have to have my performance appraisal. And what, what are they appraising? Your performance in your role. It's the language of theater. Work is the workplace, the stage, is you have your role that you perform. Now, if you are new into a role or you're going to be replacing someone in a role whilst they're on a break, you are acting in their role. I mean, we, it's flat out the language of theatre. Now, that doesn't... That, 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 so what we're suggesting is that performance isn't genuine. Of course it is. Uh, if you're a parent and your child misbehaves and you know you've got to be the disciplinarian because that's what's required. And they might have done something, and in fact, if you observe, objectively observe it, it's kind of funny, right? You, and you want to laugh, because what they've done is emptied the peanut butter on their heads or something, right? And you, and you just want to laugh, but you know that's not appropriate. So what do you do? You perform into the discipline, discipline, disciplinarian role, 
because that's appropriate to context, right? So that's what we mean by this. So it is about intent. If your intention is in service of the audience and your intention is in the benefit of their experience and their outcome, I would suggest that's authentic. The mastery is being able to be able to do that again and again and again and again and again and again and again, but in a way that makes it feel as fresh as it was the first time it was ever said. So, so yeah, it's, uh, it's it, find your stories, but also when you do have your story library, don't discount the fact that some of those stories will be gold and just get better at telling them. Find that authentic part of you that ensures that that's what's felt when they hear and experience it themselves. So it's really about that delivery, which brings me to my next question then. If I am the person who has trembling knees and I lack confidence or that sudden shock of adrenaline, you know, approaches me there, how do you handle nerves when you're on the big stage? So you talked about the theater there. So when the spotlight hits, how do you handle that? Wow. This is um, it's always such, it's an interesting question, William, because a lot of people are scared, aren't they? Right? They, they, they're fearful. They get nervous, and it's, it's really, it really is a, an interesting reaction human beings have to when they go into situations where they feel unconfident. And, and we all have contextual confidence, right? In this situation, fine. In that situation, ah, right, uncomfortable. And we've sort of compartmentalized where you feel good and where you feel nerves and so on. Now, this idea of, of nervousness and anxiety, this was brought home to me by a colleague of mine called Alan Parker. He's an Australian. Um, he does a lot of work internationally. And again, this was in Sydney. I live in Melbourne, so the Sydney is 1,000 kilometers north of me. Uh, and again, about 12, maybe longer, 15 years ago, I think. And Alan walks onto the stage. There's a room full of facilitators and educators, right? People like us. Well, we're all sitting there, right? HR people, L&D people, big conference. And he asked this question at the start. He said, how many of you get nervous before a presentation? All right, he put his hand up. And at least three quarters more, 80, 90% of the room put their hand up. And then he said this. He said, if your hand is up, then I'm going to confront you because you have no right to be nervous. I'm just sort of looking around going, what? What is he talking about? He says, because nervousness is misplaced attention. If you are nervous, where's your attention? It's on yourself. But if your attention is on your audience and on serving the audience, that's where your nerves will just be eradicated. He says, think about this. If you go into the emergency ward and you, 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 you've been in an accident, you're cut and bleeding, and you, 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 you're now in the hospital, and then this nurse rushes, rushes up to you, and, and you go, oh, you know, I'm in this state, and this, this nurse goes, oh, God, I'm nervous, oh, I'm scared. You're going, what? You don't have the right to be scared. <laughs> you're the nurse. You're the, imagine going to an unconfident dentist. I mean, you just would get out of the chair. And I thought, oh. And suddenly he reframed anxiety and nervousness. And maybe it's self-indulgent to be nervous. Now, that was my thinking. However, I still get, I get apprehensive. I get nervous. However, I've now reframed it as excitement. I'm not nervous. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to this. I'm going to use that energy 
productively. Whereas nerves tend to have a negative con uh, connotation. <gasps> oh, I hope I don't stuff up. I hope I don't make a mistake. I hope I don't forget this. I hope I don't you know, crash and burn. So we create this future pace of things going wrong. But if you are genuinely there, fully present in service of the audience, amazingly, this anxiety just falls away. It drifts, drifts away. So Alan Parker, thank you, Alan, for that challenging moment. And for all of us who felt very squirmy and uncomfortable when he <laughs> confronted us on it. Yeah. Because maybe nervous it's misplaced attention. And you're going, well, maybe, maybe that's right, right? Maybe I have to rethink what, it, what nervousness is. And excitement is a much, much better reframe. It's the same. It's, by the way, it's the same chemicals. Yeah. Right? It's exactly. the same adrenaline and everything. You just give it a better yeah. name. A more, it's a more useful name. So exactly. I get excited before a presentation. And I'm, I'm the same when I do presentation skills workshop, much like yourself, then I would often challenge people to say, actually, if your attention's on yourself, that's an, a selfish act, you know, yeah. um, and, and they're giving you their, they're lending your, their, you, their ear. So why waste that focusing on yourself? And the other thing, what I really like is what you said is that reframe to excitement, that adrenaline surge, you notice people mm -hmm. before matches, you, you, you mentioned tennis earlier on, you know, they're, they're jumping around. It's that adrenaline surge that's going on. You can't be at your optimum, you know, if you're completely, you know, uh, relaxed either. Or if you're overstressed, you can't be there. And I think that's a, a wonderful um, tip there. So when we talk about engaging people then as well, and, you know, you used a, a more pleasant term when I talked to you about um stopping people's imagination using PowerPoint. Um, for me, it's commonly known as death by PowerPoint. And this <laughs> is where I, I, the, the audience, uh, our listeners can't see this, but you have two flip charts behind you. And you are yeah. a huge inspiration for me to really up my game. Uh, so Colin, thank you very much for that. And many people would say, oh, you're so good using your flip charts. Where did you learn how to do that? All right. So for me, what I want to do is ask a little bit more about your use of flip charts and sketch notes, especially when it comes to delivery then. So that's our, our segue into sketch noting. So sketch noting, you know, why, why is it important um, to use sketch noting and I suppose avoid the overuse or that crutch of PowerPoint? Yeah, the, the sketchnoting, I think, you know, is something I naturally developed as a child for some reason. Um, you know how you at school you were taught to write in, you know, straight lines and uh, had the margin down the left-hand side and, you know, write neatly and all that sort of gear. And, of course, I, I did all that because that's how you learn to read and write uh, and writing particularly. But what I started to notice is I could remember things more if I drew them. And what I mean by drawing is I'm not saying, you know, artist-level quality drawings. I'm, I'm talking about symbols or sim a simple iconography or just the drawing circles around things and connecting them uh, with arrows and, the, you know, just the usual stuff, which then turned into something a lot later, a little later called mind mapping that became sort of like the talk of the town for, for many a year. And all the research that is now validating the fact that our minds work in pattern making and looking for connecting elements. And 
if you ever watch these detective shows on television, there's always the, the board with the, the suspect or the murdered victim and there's all the lines connecting the moving parts. And I think that's more what sketchnoting does. It helps you map the territory in a way that holds it in the mind much easier than in a linear sequence. Uh, and if I have things in like bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, it's difficult for the mind to retain that. But if I have a map, I can now uh, be able to see the, the, the entirety of the context or the situation. Uh, before we all started to use SatNav and Google Maps and all that stuff in our cars, uh, this shows you how old I am. Uh, we used to have a little uh, a book in our cars with the, the map of the city. Remember those days? And yeah. you want to drive it, and you had to go to page 24, uh, C14, uh, and there was the destination. Then you'd, now, there was a map, and, and I could then plot my route accordingly. Imagine if that was written in text. Imagine if those, those, those map books were text based. So you leave here, uh, and then you drive down for 300 meters, you'll get to a traffic circle at the third. Of course, you would not remember it, but when you see it, bang, it's all visible. And likewise, even if you have a sat-nav and you glance at the map, you know where you are. So sketch mapping and, or sketch t taking notes down in that format is also linked to the love of things like emojis, right? There's the power of the image. It tells a story. There's, there's, Im, there's emotion linked to it. There's narrative linked to it. And then a combination of emojis tells its own little sub-narrative. And, and now it's become part of our communication. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, someone's even written, I think, a, a story just in emojis that most people can interpret. Like they just follow the emoji path. And there it is, right? So we are built for imagery. It's part of, the, again, like we are built for story, symbols and icons and, and, and gra graphic device is all part of how we encode and store content and information. Um, if you look at your desktop uh, and the graphic user interface was designed exactly along these lines, uh, on your desktop, which is virtual, you'll have folders, which are symbols, and you double click on that and then there are your pages. Right? This is just simple, simple uh, graphic ways of representing data, which is far better than the old ways that con computers used to store information in files under a directory, blah, blah, blah. So here we can see it, and we can move things around. And as you do that, we can do this in our minds. As we can do it externally, we can do it internally. And as a result, I think it also enhances and improves memory. So when I'm sitting in a, in a lecture or I'm sitting in a presentation or even taking notes on a TED talk or something, I'm sketching. So I'm drawing little symbols and notes. And you might have seen people like this at conferences who do these sort of little sketchy things. And people go, oh, I could never do that. Well, you don't have to be an artist. It doesn't matter what you draw. You just make that meaningful. So if a circle with two dots in it is a face, right? Literally, a circle with two dots is a face. Or if you write the letter uh, on, or the word on, O-N, but vertically, O-N, you put the circle at the top and the N underneath. That's a human being right there. You've got a, some, a graphic representation of a human, O-N, on. Uh, if you want to draw a profile, I, I just write one, two, three, four, down one underneath the other, one, two, three, four. And that, in fact, if you do that, you can see a profile of a person start to emerge. Uh, and it's these little techniques
that then help you graphically capture. Now, as a result of doing this for years, I am now quite proficient as a sketch artist now. I, I, can, <laughs> I can sketch things. And because I'm observing with very uh, focused intent when I'm looking at somebody, I, I can now find I can sketch them quite accurately too. Uh, because when I'm in a lecture, I often sketch the person that's speaking. And I've moved from cartoon to uh, easy, quick ways of capturing people. So, so but it's uh, like anything. Here's the big secret: practice. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 so simple, right? So that's for note taking, and then I just transpose that to flip charting. I mean, how many of us are, as you say, death by PowerPoint, paralysis by PowerPoint? And we've all sat there, haven't we? And someone comes up, or they, it's on the virtual, and there it is, heading, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, heading, bullet point, bullet point, logo bottom right-hand corner, logo bottom right-hand corner. Do you remember pre-COVID? Someone, someone would put up a slide and go, now, you probably won't be able to read this, yeah. but show it anyway. I mean, and then they apologize. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had no control over my ability to amend the slide. That's why it's an eight-point font and so packed with content that you can't make any sense of it whatsoever. It's a slide. Someone made it. You are now showing it. You're telling me you couldn't change that slide? This is the nonsense we put up with. And so we, when people create something visually in real time, couple of things happen. One, it's engaging. Wow, look at that, right? You're seeing it emerge. Secondly, you cannot put too much content. You don't have time. So you then have to take it back to the real essence of your message, right? There's only, there's only a few small key words you can put up on a flip chart, right? You can't write whole sentences, which no one reads anyway, let alone remember. And so you become very disciplined in visual aids. And in our methodology, you know, one of the things we always say, right, visual aids are exactly that. They're an aid. That's what they are, an aid to the experience. They're not the experience. And here's the, here's the litmus test of all of this. If your technology failed, in other words, your PowerPoint didn't work, could you still deliver the outcome? Most people would just collapse. Amazingly, Global organizations were built in, across this world, historically, without PowerPoint slides. Global wars were fought without PowerPoint slides. I mean, civilizations were created, no PowerPoint slides. It's a recent thing. Now, I know acetate and the overhead projector, but you know what I love about the overhead? Remember, on the, they put the acetate down, they used to put a piece of paper down, yeah. and they'd do the slow reveal. Right? Yeah. And you're wondering what's under the shadow? Like, show me! Right? There's like some yeah. weird strip tease. That's more engaging than most PowerPoint slides, right? There's something about the reveal that is important, right? Yeah. So when people put up a whole slide, what does everyone do? Reads it, thinks they got it, and they go to premature closure. They go, oh, I know what that is, shut down, happy place, gone. So you've got to really, you've got to reveal. Uh, element by element, and that's why flip charts are so beautiful, because you can literally draw, map it out as you are going into your content. Is there a place for PowerPoint? Definitely, particularly with uh, statistics numbers graphing, um, that can be very useful. It does visually take data and make it uh, visually representative. If you want to see growth curves and um, you want to see um, 
how something might play out over a time frame. Mm. But that, that serves a purpose. May I suggest that content on slides where you're putting sentences, whole word sentences, uh, with bullet point elements is not useful. So we've got to simply have this test. At the end of your communication, ask them what they remembered on the slides. Be prepared to be shocked. Most people won't remember much at all. They may remember something that was directly relevant and pertinent to them, but a lot of the time, much of it is dross, background, and already forgotten. However, flip charts tend to be much more memorable. So, you know, I have really good uh, paper. I, I, have my, I import my pens from Germany. I have inks, so my pens are vivid and bright. Uh, and I, everywhere I travel, I have my pens with me. Uh, and that's, that's fundamental to our methodology is the use of graphic elements that support the learning. I'm, I'm very much uh, aligned uh, with that. And in terms of that, you're reminding me of different things. So I've helped people in the past. For example, many people when they're doing, for example, a presentation or an address, like a wedding speech, for example, many people are so nervous. I remember helping my cousin out before and, you know, he was being berated because he couldn't read off the speech cards, you know, he's, uh, by uh, his family. <laughs> and I just said, OK, give, come to me for an hour. All right. So my, my cousin Joe here, he's speaking for his, his brother, uh, Johnny, who was best man. And we created a mind map and we just use simple things like Johnny is a, is a fireman. We created a ladder, you know, different images then like. Uh, it, it, um, Aideen, who was who was marrying my cousin Johnny, she was from Connemara, so we drew waves to represent the coast. You know, so different yeah. things like that. I think is is really important for people, and it's it's funny. Um, he presented that and delivered that speech so confidently, like people were kind of going, "What did you do in the hour?" This is people process in a different way, and they have patterns. And it was just like, it was broken down into sections then of stories, little bubbles. And then it had a flow, it had an arc, you know, and everything was covered through visuals. And people went up to him afterwards, you must have rehearsed that for months. Little did they know that was created at 10.30 uh, the night before. <laughs> um, and I did all the drawing, by the way. So um, I think I think that's it's really good because it's quite engaging as well. Flip charts because you can customize then to your audience. So then this is where improvisation can come in, can't it, Colin? In terms of context, then so going back to our friend Billy Connolly, then this is where we can create those loops or improvisation by using something that using that live draw approach. It's exactly what a story does, right? So the story ignites the imagination, and you create the create the pictures in your head. What you're doing is just augmenting that with with your visual aid to uh, support, particularly from a content point of view, a way of remembering the the information. I mean, you know, when you think about Billy Connolly on stage for two and a half hours, I mean that's just one bloke on stage two and a half hours, um, nonstop, and you you are engaged for every second. Because sometimes people say, oh, I need slides because you know, I've, got to, I've got to keep them engaged. You, in fact, are achieving exactly the opposite, right? <laughs> Your slides aren't engaging. It's you that will be the one who will engage. And the slides are there as an adjunct, a support, and a reference. 
But you do make an important point, uh, uh, you know, William, the, the flexibility of a flip chart. Because, you know, when, if, you've got a, if you've got slides, you're forced more or less to follow the sequence that they're in. Uh, and your ability to deviate or to go down an interesting pathway that's prompted by a question or to respond to a need that you didn't anticipate. Well, if you've got your slide deck there, suddenly you're somehow beholden to the damn slides. And look, I'm, I'm still in a situation where clients will say to me, can you send us the slide deck? And I say, I don't have slides. And they go, what do you mean you don't have slides? And like, they can't believe it. And I said, no, we, we, we don't have slides. And I said, well, no, but we need a slide deck. I said, well, what I will be doing is flip charts. Um, how about I put those flip charts onto slides and then we can send those to participants afterwards? Well, no, I, well, we need the slide deck beforehand. So I have created slide decks, which I then send to clients just to meet that need. And then I ignore it when we get into the content. I mean, I might make one or two references, but I will go back to flip charts. But for some reason, people can't rest without a slide deck, the comfort of the slides. It's almost become this Linus blanket thing. Uh, but in the delivery, it's about the outcome from the audience perspective, feel, think, do, commit to. And I'm certainly not going to be limited by this, the slide sequence. And oh, the other thing too, of course, is people get lazy. And you've seen, you've seen this one where you know someone hasn't rehearsed when they're going through slides and then suddenly a slide comes up and they say, oh, this one. What do you mean, oh, this one? You didn't even know this was in the deck. And then they have to now extemporize around the, the slide that they just go, oh, sorry. And then they make some crap up. And, you know, you just know, come on. Uh, so, but with, with, flip, with flip charts, with whiteboarding, and look, I do, use, I do use PowerPoint slides, but very sparingly and very deliberately. Uh, it does have a value and a, a method. So there's no, it's, it's not that PowerPoint's bad. It's just used badly. Mm. That's basically the, the, yeah. the scenario. Yeah. And what I would often say to people is it's, it's a bit like any skill or any strength that you have overuse and underuse. So if you overuse PowerPoint, it means you're underusing something else like the power to engage in a different way, you know, like yeah. lip charting. And, and some people then a bit like yourself is you must be an artist or whatever. And um, I think it's very clear I'm not an artist. And, and what I was told in terms of the advice I got was create a visual library. But then you have the yeah. simple shapes then like a uh, like a circle, a triangle, a rectangle, you know, a simple arc or a straight line. And these are things you can create so many different things uh, out of so simply, you know. So yeah. again, in terms of that, then, you know, the little bit about, you know, you, you spoke about being lazy then is because sometimes people may not be preparing that well or may not know their content well. And that's why they're writing down all those sentences uh, there. So that brings me to the point there is there's different ways to prepare then for presentations or storytelling then is true to design, but it's also been, you know, a bit more clever about that or strategic. So can you tell me how much time should you spend preparing? Now this, this, this question definitely relates to new content, content that you have some familiarity with, and obviously con content that's second nature to you. Now with new content, um, if I'm developing a new content uh, piece, 
And sometimes this will be for a keynote or um, I'm thinking about an hour inclusion of a new idea or I'm having to use a client's content that, yeah. um, so for example, with one technology client, they are introducing a global project and I'll, I'm going to be their spokesperson across the regions talking to their market unit leaders. Now, they, their leader, their global leader could do it, but they have contracted me to deliver the message on their behalf. And it is quite complex. It's about cloud transformation journeys and digital transformation and the end-to-end the -end enterprise solution architecture, you know, stuff I'm not that familiar with, but I'm now in, you know, getting deep into, the, into that content. The ratio that we use is about um, it's a 10 to 1 for new content. So 10 hours for one hour of content. When I say 10 hours of prep, um, this is, includes the design element, which is pretty usually, uh, often pretty straightforward. It's already captured somewhere in PowerPoint slides or in documentation. So most of the time is standing and practicing delivery. Uh, the one thing I love about using Zoom is I can record. So I will stand in front of my camera and my computer and I will record myself real time, delivering the content using the flip charts, playback, then refine, playback. Then I send it out to, uh, I have a network of people that I ask for feedback on, uh, and then they all come back and support me. Now, th this level of uh, preparation is because that's my, that's my business. I mean, I, if, I, if, I, if I'm getting paid a lot of money to deliver a result, I will do whatever it takes to make sure I deliver that, reputationally, of course, and just makes sound business sense. I mean, I cannot have a bad day. That's, the, that's just not, that's not available. I do not have bad days. I mean, a heart surgeon cannot have a bad day. Uh, why not hold myself to that standard as an educator? I think that's worth doing. I mean, there's too many people that show up looking functionally alert. There's too many people who go through the ritual because they've done it a thousand times before, and people can tell immediately. So new content is where uh, a lot of the work obviously takes most of the time. In content that I'm familiar with, so this morning in Australia, uh, I presented a three-hour session this morning. It's now in the evening in this part of the world. It was content I, I have done before. But I woke up mentally rehearsing. And as I was driving into my studio, I was mentally rehearsing. I'd also had the names of all the participants. I'd printed off all their LinkedIn profiles. I'd done Google searches on all of them to see if they'd been interviewed on video. I knew all their names and all their backgrounds. So I had that data. That, took, that takes about two, three hours. And then the content side was mental rehearsal. Now, I also know the vision, mission, value statement of that organization. I also have an insight into its five pillars of its strategy. And so I'm now going to reference my content to those key elements that are very real for their world. I also have context, which is how their uh, industry is faring and what's their recent new information or news on their organization that's been in the press. I've done that research. So all of this prep. So when I'm not delivering, I'm prepping. I, I think that's really the point, um, and that's it, right? It's prepare, 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 and the, you know the, it's a, it's a cliche, but the the a professional athlete will warm up for hours before they get onto whatever their field of endeavour is. The Australian Ballet Company is one of our clients, and 
if you go and watch a ballet performance, uh, it's, you know, these are world-class athletes. They start preparing at 4 p.m. for an 8 o'clock start. From 4 p.m., they're warming up. They're getting their bodies ready. And often, you know, for the solo artist, that might mean that they will be on stage in total for 17 minutes for their series of solo or, or pas de deux or with they dancing with another partner. That's quite a lot of time for the physical effort that they expend. But they've been, for every single performance, they've got four hours of just getting their bodies ready for that night's performance. Well, this is, you know, world-class ballet companies. But that's what I mean, right? So it's, it's, the question is, what standard do you want to live and play by? And do the work, right? There's no other secret to any of this. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's it's it, funny. Right? It's, I get this all the time, because I remember doing a, a, a presentation, a webinar on transferring your business online, and I talked about facilitation and training and they were looking at me using all my gadgets my ipad you know the visual sketch noting and stuff like that and people said yeah but what's the shortcut and i says there is no <laughs> shortcut you know this is what people are paying for is exactly what you're talking about is all those hours of preparation whether it's reading 10 books for one single presentation you know or whatever isn't it this is this is where we're at and you know, again, in, in terms of when I hear you speak, then, Colin, there is no weak language. This is what I was really impressed by you when you first spoke um, in Harvard. Um, and in, in terms of that, what can people do to avoid using weak language? What I mean by that is something that doesn't add value to the audience. What are the, the pointers you might add to people? Because I think this is part of preparation, isn't it? If our primary means of being able to support and influence others will be the words we use, then becoming skillful and adroit with your vocabulary and use of language then becomes a key capability. Language is often sloppy, ill-thought, and misapplied. So an example would be um, the overuse of LY adverbs. Now, LY adverbs are any of the adverbs like really, basically, fundamentally, totally, absolutely, the LY. And, and you'll hear this a lot when people say, so what we're going to actually focus on is something that's really important and it's absolutely critical that we totally... And so they use this hyperbolic use of English to try and create emphasis, when in fact it does the opposite. It sounds overstretched. Or your emphasis, in fact, is being diluted by straining the idea with these LY adverb weight, which is unnecessary. Uh, and you'll, you'll see this in social, you know, in, in movies, you know, totally, right? you know, awesome, right? You know, these, these over, overblown words. So pairing it back and, and finding eloquence and simplicity and brevity, all are key aspects to command and control. Listen to people like Stephen Fry. Honestly, have you listened to this man? Not only the, to the tone of his voice, the mellifluous quality and the rhythm and syncopation of his enunciation of every word, 
has a power and a purpose and a value and a weight that transcends the norm. And you cannot not listen to him. Now, that's not accidental. That's not just some gift that he's been bestowed with. It's practice. And this comes back again, focusing on ensuring that you do use words advisedly or you are considering the weight of the language that you're going to employ. Sit in a meeting, any business meeting, and what do you hear? Well, I think at the end of the day going forward, it's about the buy-in of all the stakeholders. Uh, you know, I think when we step up to the plate here, people, we've got to hit it out of the park. We can't go after the low-hanging fruit, right? We can't, right? We've got to, when the rubber hits the road, it's about making sure our ducks are all lined up in a row because there's no iron team. We all know, and you go, what are you saying? This gobbledygook, right? This, this empty, vacuous language that is so prevalent. Politicians are even worse. They, they, they make noise, substance-free noise or distraction. And as a result, people become jaded and cynical towards them. Why don't, doesn't, where is the leader that speaks the truth in plain, simple English or their plain, simple language? That's what we crave. Now, it's, it's not trying to be overly smart or... Uh, you know, English is such a funny, such a funny language. Uh, I mean, do, you know, do you know the word sesquipedalianism? William, no. have you heard of this word? I so have sesquipedalianism, right? it's phonetic. If you go and look it up, sesquib, Q-U-I-B, adalianism. Sesquipedalianism means the use of long words. <laughs> so even the, crazily enough, right? So sesquipedalianism is the use of long words. It's one of the longest words in English. You know, this is the beauty, super the kind of fragilistic expialidocious, but <laughs> yeah, anyways, that's my Mary Poppins <laughs> approach. That took me five years to get that one at Karen Ray. Thank you very much for teaching me that. So we, we, we talked about that the longest word in the English dictionary is, is just that, right? It's one of the longest, yeah. And it means yeah. the use of long words. I mean, that's how, you know, like, I love the fact that there's no, there's no other word for thesaurus, right? You know, this is the beauty of, of the craziness of, 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 of English. Um, but the point I'm making is read, listen, pay attention, hear yourself. Start thinking also about the power of the pause. The space between the words is often more evocative and powerful than the words themselves, right? These are things that we can play with. The voice then also becomes a, another aspect of this. And think about your voice as an instrument that you can learn to play. So where do you, again, what tempo or pace at which you speak, pitch, projection, pausing, as I've just said, all of this is around the, 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 the tonal richness and wonderful uh, uh, auditory quality that you can create just with your mouth. And then the words themselves built into that facilitate or create experience. And that's what we're in the business of, experience creation, experience management, which is the essence of communication. Colin, I could talk to you all day <laughs> long. We are getting to the end of the podcast here. So what I'm going to do is invite you to maybe give some key takeaways here. There's so much more we could talk about. We could talk about body language and how to exude that charisma and 
executive presence. And I know you have your own Colin James method. So I know there's, you have a couple of uh, free giveaways to our listeners here. So again, in terms of today, what are the key takeaways from today's conversation that people should really remember when it comes to business storytelling and sketchnoting? From a storytelling point of view is that you are surrounded by stories every day. If you become story aware and story awake, you can take simple everyday experiences and then apply them to the, to the formula. And the formula is something happened, from that you extract a point, and then you link that to the outcome. And that in the event or the experience that happened, think of the four W's. When did it take place? Where did it take place? Who was involved and what happened? The magic though is in the linking. So build your story library and your life is nothing more than a collection of stories already. Now just add to them, sort them out and think about applying them. Secondly, practice. Preparation and practice. Nothing is achieved in this life without that discipline. There's no secret sauce. There's no magic pudding. There's no, you know, uh, here are the three steps to making your life uh, brilliant. It takes work. I haven't seen anyone who's achieved anything without that quality of commitment to their practice of what they're doing. And then with sketchnoting, um, start giving yourself permission to give it a go. Do not be inhibited by the nonsense in your head that says, oh, you're not an artist. It's not about being an artist at all. If you can write, you can draw because writing is drawing already. When you write the letter A, you've drawn it. So you take an A and you can do, you can create something from that. Uh, and as you know, William, as you said, drawing a ladder, two vertical lines with, uh, with t t horizontal lines, ladder, waves, right? Just squiggles on a page, there's waves, right? Anything that you now add or create a link to becomes the, the image. We speak in icons and we communicate in text with emojis. We are already using graphical language everywhere. Just now start playing with that. Drop your dependence on PowerPoint, flip charting, whiteboarding, or other um, uh, uh, apps that have that creative capacity, much more rich and engaging. But practice, 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 and remember to enjoy it. Right? If, you, if you bring that energy every day, then your energy becomes a contagion. People love it. They feel juiced by it. Uh, and as you're doing that, you start to refine your language skills as well. So those would be the, the takeaways, William. I really appreciate those key takeaways, which have great substance, and I must say with great brevity. So it's nice that you're practicing what you preach uh, there, Colin. <laughs> and if people were to get in contact with you, how might they do so? The, the website is, is called colinjamesmethod.com. Uh, the method itself is 30 years of research on looking at methodology associated with communication, with leadership and culture. Uh, the reason it's called the Colin James Method was because our marketing department said, um, all your clients talk about the Colin James Method. And I said, do they? Because I, I found that a bit surprising. And I didn't realize that I'd sort of become a brand. Uh, I, I still feel a bit awkward about it. But it is really simply the methodology on how, on much of what we've discussed today, is 
is defined in that methodology. Um, there, we have uh, also, if you go to the website, there's a, a free ebook on storytelling. Um, so you can just download that, and that'll give you um, much more uh, practical how to's on what we've discussed on, on, on our uh, podcast today. Really uh, appreciate that. And there's also a webinar that's available then that I'll have in the um, description of this podcast as well. And thank you very much for that generous, uh, kind. Uh, gift and I must say it has been wonderful to speak to you today I'm definitely a fan of you Colin and the Colin James method and I'm sure our audience will be as well William thank you for the opportunity it's so good to see you again it's a long time since our Harvard days uh, yeah. and, in, and in honor of that I'm wearing my Harvard jacket with the Harvard symbol on it that your listeners can't see but uh, I remember the time that we spent those years ago yeah, exquisitely. It was such a profound and uh, important experience in, uh, in both our lives. And a chance to catch up again has been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on to the Workplace Podcast. And thanks to our listeners as well for checking in. That's it for this episode of the Workplace Podcast. My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with a podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, contact me via Twitter at Different Paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corless, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organization.